0: Thank you Hayden for reading Uh, Good morning and uh, from my part Happy Father's Day to the dads uh, To those present and those absent Um, It's good to be with you And um, and to be warm in here Uh, Let me just Here we go Uh, Sorry, one more thing Plug in There we go Great. Why don't I pray, and then we'll get into those verses together. Father, we're so grateful to be here. We're grateful to be uh, those that you care sufficiently about, that not only have you revealed yourself, spoken into your world with Jesus, who is your final word, but you have sovereignly moved in the details of our lives, even as Jeremy shared his testimony, to put us within the sound of the gospel. And then you have moved sovereignly by your spirit to give us ears to hear that gospel. And our longing is that you would give us more and more of that desire to know, hear, listen, and therefore not drift away from the Lord Jesus. Would you work that even in these next moments for Jesus' glory? Amen. Amen. So um, so we've said of the book of Hebrews that it's a sermon. It's a classic Christian sermon which has explanation and reasoning and argumentation together with an appeal, right? So it doesn't just remain in one part of us. It engages the whole of us. It doesn't bypass the brain. It works through the brain to reach the heart, to activate the will. It doesn't bypass the brain, uh, but nor does it leave our behavior unchanged. It's a message about all of God that addresses all of us. And the point that we were saying kind of is the banner headline for the book as a whole, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, is that we're to keep listening to Jesus because Jesus is God's final word and he is God's finished work. Uh, The passage that we're looking at uh, this morning, well, it has that type of exhortation in it um, the exhortation gets kind of put in different ways throughout the book. It's it dropped in in different ways. This exhortation to listen to Jesus because he is God's final word. And the way that the author puts it in this passage today is there in chapter 2 and verse 1. We are to be those who pay much closer attention to what we have heard. These are Christians who have heard of Jesus. Pay much closer attention to him, lest we drift Uh, This is a sermon it's an it's an exhortation to those who are in danger of losing their edge losing the edge in their faith I wonder if I said to you how edgy is your faith right now? How dull or how sharp is the edge of your faith Uh, when they started out their faith had a sharp edge to it? It was incisive It was the tool that they used to assess all of their lives to reorient parts of their lives, to reshape other parts. Uh, It was also the faith that they shared. It was the faith that they contended for in the public sphere. It was a sharp edge to their faith. But but now, like an axe that had become dull uh, through use, it had become blunt. It had lost its sharp edge. Uh, And losing our edge, losing the edge of our faith, can happen in a bunch of ways. We touched on these last week. It can happen when we stall in our faith, when we come off our spiritual growth curve, when Jesus becomes ordinary, when he becomes predictable. Uh, We can lose the sharp edge of our faith when we compromise. And that always is in the area of sin, isn't it? When habits that we drift into or decisions that we make are at odds with the faith that we profess. They don't fit what we say we believe uh, because we've compromised. And then we can also become dull through hardship, because circumstances, either just because we're human or specifically because we're Christian, are against us, and they wear us down. To remain sharp-edged in our faith for the long haul is tough. That is the assumption behind the exhortation that the sermon writer is giving us, because to stick with Jesus wholeheartedly for the long haul is to stick with a message that the world finds offensive. It's the message of verse 1 to 3 that we looked at last week, and it is offensive. Uh, Jesus is the eternal Son who created you. Because he is the heir of all things, he owns you. Because he is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, he is the one on whom your very next breath is utterly and fully dependent. And therefore you owe him everything. You owe him all of your allegiance, And He is the only one who can purify your sins, which is your default standing before God. You stand as a sinner, as a rebel against God. He is the only one who can make purification. And because He has achieved that, He has sat down at the right hand of God, and He rules over absolutely everything. Everything is accountable to Him. And so therefore, you must listen to Him and to Him alone. Otherwise, you will remain ultimately under his judgment that's the message and it is an abrasive message Jesus is the final word about God and he is the finished work of God and because God has spoken in Jesus there is nothing more to say because there is nothing more to do if that is your message if that is the message that you have internalized then there is much around us that will want to blunt that And therefore we will be tempted to live, to exist with a blunt faith. Because there is so much against that. Not to leave Jesus behind, not to make a decision to walk away from Him, to turn our backs on Him, but maybe just to soften, maybe just to take the edge off. Still believing, but maybe now a little bit more religious than cutting-edge, Jesus-focused. And what the writer wants us to do, and wants to do for us, is to sharpen our faith again. That's the journey we're on. Um, His means might not look impressive, just like um, this little tool over here, which is an axe sharpening tool. And uh, compared to the big axe, uh, it doesn't look like it's up to the task, right? Um, But this apparently is all that I need. I said I need something to sharpen my axe, and they they took this thing out. I said, no, you're kidding. And they said, no, this is all you need, uh, because it's actually got diamonds in it. And if you just sit there patiently and you work the axe, well then from blunt, it becomes sharp. And that's what uh, is happening with the book of Hebrews. There's going to be things in here that don't, on the face of it, look impressive to us. If Jesus has become ordinary, if he's become predictable to us, and this is a book about Jesus, right? You might think, well, don't I need something extra? And the writer is saying, no, there's diamonds in there. That is all you need. If you sit patiently and you work with it, Well, then the edge will come back. God has spoken to us uh, in his Son. The the logic so far has been, the the reason that you should not drift is because Jesus is God's eternal Son. He is the final word to humanity, the eternal Son. Uh, The reason today that we're not to drift is because Jesus, who is the eternal Son, has become the enthroned Son. That's the heading. For everything we're going to say today. In Jesus' relationship to God, which was explained to us last week, he takes us, gives us an eternal perspective, and he locates Jesus in his eternal relationship with his heavenly Father. He is the eternal Son, and today he's going to take Jesus, and he's going to locate him into the whole of the rest of the universe and history, and he's going to say he is the enthroned Son over all of that. The reason to pay much closer attention, well, what's interesting how he puts it in this chapter, the reason you are to pay much closer attention to Jesus as the enthroned son is because he is way better than the angels. I wonder if you spotted that as um, Hayden was reading. All of the references to angels, they're everywhere in this passage. Uh, They're everywhere up in in this section, up until the end of chapter 2. They're there in verse 4, verse 5. Verse 6, verse 7, verse four, 13, 14, chapter 2, verse 2, 2, verse 5, 2, verse 16. And they're inserted in there because the writer is trying to make us understand and establish for us the angelic order, uh, the order into which the angels fit. Uh, we lost over verse 4 last week, but perhaps that's a useful one to dip into. Having become... Jesus having become as much superior to the angels. Remember, there's that superior word. Jesus is better, he's greater, he's superior. Jesus having become as much superior to angels. Jesus is better than the angels. And as soon as you say that, and you say, well, seriously, Jesus is better than the angels. That's, that's amazing. That seals the deal for me. If Jesus is better than the angels, then, then where do I sign up? There's no ways that I'm going to be drifting away from him Well, what is all of this about angels, you might ask? They don't seem to factor as heavily in our lives as they seem to have in the lives of the original readers. Uh, But that's where we need to understand. Why would angels have represented a distraction from listening to Jesus for the original hearers? And the commentators talk about various options. Uh, They come down to two main options, and I think actually in the end it's probably a combination of both of these. Option one is that young christians have started in the faith but they're tempted to give an exaggerated importance to angels angels are not kind of sheet wearing cloud floaty harp playing beings they are warrior messengers they are one below heaven somebody put it this way they, they, they represent the border between heaven and earth they're above humanity we'll see in next week's passage they are supernatural beings and so young christians are tempted to give them an exaggerated place, and to worship them, to treat them as intermediaries who carry an authority with God, an extraordinary authority with Him. Attempted to worship the angels. The the other temptation is to give too high a place to the message that the angels declared. Um, The angels uh, delivered the Old Testament law. Uh, We're not told that in the giving of the law in the Old Testament, but the New Testament, when it refers back to the giving of the law, says the law was delivered by angels. You can see that in a couple of references, Acts chapter 7, verse 38, verse 56, and then Galatians 3, verse 19. It tells us that the angels themselves appeared on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, when Moses was receiving the law. And so the temptation uh, is either to worship or to follow, to give too high a place to the message that the angels brought. And you can see why that's a temptation, can't you? If you're a follower of Jesus, well, Jesus message, Jesus' message came via a bunch of scraggly Galilean fishermen. But that message came, well, that message came by warrior messengers. Now, it feels very ordinary, the gospel of Jesus. The temptation not to drift here is not to drift into a Christless religion, but I guess to augment it. But as you augment it with the focus of angels, it, it is a distraction. It distorts. It, it removes the distinctives and the sharp edge that Jesus is the eternal Son, who is God's final word and God's finished work. Because much of what is precious and distinctive about Jesus, on the face of it, looks ordinary, even humiliating. I take it you and I... Um, Chat to me afterwards if, if you are tempted to follow angels. I tempt, I'd imagine most of us aren't. Uh, but like, all of, like our ancestors, all of us, well, we are in danger of losing our edge. And so here is the solution. Uh, this little tool, uh, this kind of very ordinary topic, supposedly looking at Jesus. It doesn't look like much on the face of it, but it has diamonds in it. And so our job is to, is to work with it. And the axe will go from blunt to being razor sharp. The eternal Son has become the enthroned Son. Let's zoom in on uh, verse 5 to 13, because what the author does there is he takes seven quotes. He employs them to build the case that Jesus, the eternal Son, has become the enthroned Son. His genius uh, of the writer is that he uses the Old Testament. That's genius, isn't it? Yeah. For those who are tempted to follow the angels who were the messengers of the Old Testament, um, let me use the Old Testament to argue that if you focus on the angels in the Old Testament, then, then actually you're being distracted from the very direction that they wanted to point you in, in the first place. In fact, if you're to take the angels and the Old Testament seriously, then you will direct all of your attention to Jesus. And he builds his case in steps. The first of which is that the sun has been crowned and is ruling. And that's a uh, verse 5, first part of verse 5, first quote there is from Psalm 2. Um, Psalm 2, to give us perspective, was massive in the first century for Christians. It was the John 3:16 of the day. That's the one that I guess most Christians would say that they know. I once heard somebody put it this way: that if you were a, t- a Christian teenager in the first century, and you had a hoodie with a scripture verse on it, then, then 90% chances are that that verse would come from Psalm 2. It was that big. It's a psalm about God's response to the nations that stand against Him, that reject God and His Messiah. And God's response, in the face of that supposedly powerful opposition, is to laugh, and reassert his rule by installing his king, his Messiah, to whom every knee must bow or be destroyed. But in uh, Psalm 2 and verse 7, God addresses that king. He speaks to that king and he does so in a, in, a, in a way that for us is really surprising. He says there, verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you, which is to say God's king well, he is not just any king. He is God's son. Or to put it the other way around, um, to flesh out what it means for Jesus to be the son of God, the son of God is a title. Well, it's not just a divine title. It is also a royal title. Uh, we would think that uh, to, to, for Jesus to be the son of God, to apply that title to him, is just simply to say that Jesus is divine. The son of God is God, Right? But the psalmist wants to take it a step further and deeper to say that the Son of God is also God's King, this King from Psalm 2. And so now, by, by quoting that verse from Psalm 2, over a thousand years after it was penned, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus, who walked around in Nazareth, he is that Son of God King, the eternal Son has become the enthroned Son in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason that the uh, writer of Hebrews can do that in just such a succinct way in the first part of uh, verse 5 is because he's pulling on a whole bunch of data that is there in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, making that point, the evidence being when you put it all together, that that the scope of Jesus' time on earth, right up to His resurrection and His ascension, you could read all of that in one way. You could read all of that as one long coronation ceremony. And there are various steps in the process. I put the process on your outline. We don't have time to go into every detail. But His baptism, His transfiguration, His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension. Uh, Jesus' uh, baptism, all all of those things are about the coronation of Jesus. All of them are about Jesus becoming the enthroned son. That's what his baptism is about. I wonder if that's a question that you've asked yourself. When you read about his baptism, Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, Jesus in the Jordan with John the Baptist comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. What's going on there? This, This is not Jesus as a sinner, having his sins washed away. That wasn't true of him. He didn't need cleansing like we do. It's just what our baptism symbolizes. He didn't need to be united with Jesus. He was Jesus. He didn't need to be united with himself. Right? Okay, that, that's not what it is. His baptism was unique. It was in fact a coronation ceremony. So as the Spirit comes down and rests on him, that is what Isaiah promised would happen as the anointing of the King. The king would be anointed with oil. Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit who comes on him and rests on him. That is the marker that he is the king. And then what happens at the same time is God from heaven speaks and says, This is my Son, the Beloved. This is God saying, in other words, This is my Psalm 2 King, Son of God. The only other time recorded in the Gospels that God speaks from heaven is a Jesus' transfiguration, right? Where God says, again from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Sounds like a Hebrew's message, doesn't it? Uh, What is the transfiguration? Well, when you read Mark, uh, chapter 9, it's where Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain, get a glimpse of Jesus being transfigured, dazzling white. What they're glimpsing is Jesus not in His stripped-back humanity and apparent vulnerability. They are seeing Jesus for who He really is, which is in His dazzling kingly glory. Uh, that's His baptism and His transfiguration. Crucifixion, we know, ironically, is His coronation, you know, His purple robe, and um, the sign on the cross above, this is the King of the Jews, and, and the irony of the crown of thorns being pressed into His skull. But then uh, His resurrection, very obviously, is his coronation. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 says that it is at his resurrection that he was declared to be the son of, to declared with power to be the son of God, the king, through his resurrection by the Spirit. And Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 32 to 33, back that up. They say the same thing. Uh, Acts quotes Psalm 2, verse 7 again, and this time attaching it, this declaration, you are my son, you are my king, attaching it to the resurrection. And so Jesus' baptism, His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, are all elements of, this, of God saying, this is my King. This is the Son of God. Best you listen. Best you bow the knee to Him. Now when He says, uh, this is my Son today, I have become your Father, it's not true to say, you know, people get a bit confused. Uh, Jesus was never not God's Son. He is the eternal Son. It's not like at that moment God said, Oh, I think I'll adopt you. It's that he was being declared and publicly announced to be the Son of God, revealed to be God's King. The eternal Son who stands in eternal relationship with God the Father, now journeying into world history that he might be crowned as the enthroned Son. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying is that that places him above everyone, even the angels, God's warrior messengers. So best you listen. The Son of God has been crowned and and is ruling, and then he is ruling on a forever throne, secondly. The second quote in verse 5 comes from 2 Samuel 7. It's the great covenant with King David. 2 Samuel 7, it's worth a read. And the promise to David was that his descendant, would rule on the throne forever. problem was kings come and they go, they die, they're replaced by their sons who end up being reprobates and they lead God's people astray. And now God is saying there is a forever king coming. He is your descendant. He will be on a forever throne. And many had read that people to say that, that David was going to have a house. He was going to have a succession of kings so that the house of David or David's royal line would never die out. And now what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is because he's applying that promise, fulfillment, made to to David and his descendants, he's applying it to Jesus, and now he is saying it has been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled in two ways. Not only does Jesus have a divine royal bloodline, Son of God, but he has a human royal bloodline, Son of David. And then secondly, well, that throne is an everlasting throne. There is no time when it will come to an end. And so 2 Samuel 7 verse 13, He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. And I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. And your throne will be secure forever. But not only would the throne be eternal... Well, so would the king. Have a look down at verse 8 and 9. He is God's forever king. A quote from Psalm 45 just drives home the fact that Jesus' throne and his kingship are eternal. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever and ever. Because he is, well, he's described there as God's anointed one. He's the one that God has chosen for the task. Chosen because his kingdom was one of uprightness, unlike any king before or since. We're told he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness, and therefore he is God's designated forever king. So where have we got to? The eternal son has become the enthroned son, a forever king on a forever throne. And then also he is a king who is served by angels. We said up front uh, angels featured prominently. And what he does here, he's he's got lots of data in there about the son, about the king, and about him being the enthroned son. And he's got all this data about the angels, but he's using this information about the angels to make the point and reinforce the point about the enthroned son, because he's contrasting the two. And he contrasts the two in a couple of ways um, in these verses, verses 6 and 7. He he weaves the angels in. And what he's doing is he's putting the angels in their place. That's a brave thing to do, right? If these are warrior messengers. But actually not really that brave. Because the way he does it is just by quoting the Old Testament. By quoting God's words about the angels. And the first is a quote from Deuteronomy 32. This is Moses. Moses' song standing on the border of the land. Israel about to go in. And these are the last words of Moses' song. The climax of the song. And there he says, and this is the Greek version of the Old Testament. You can ask me, there's a technical question about that later. Um, There it says, "Let let everything worship him. As we step into the land, the land where God is king, let everyone worship God's king. Let all gods and let all angels worship him. And you see what the writer of the Hebrews is doing by inserting that quote from the Old Testament. He's saying, the reason you shouldn't worship angels is because God's angels were always going to worship Jesus. Why stop at worshipping the angels? Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they were pointing to. Everything and all gods will bow down in worship of God's King. And then in verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 104, verse 4, Do you see what he calls the angels? How he describes the angels in there? So those 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 are from Hebrew poetry. There's two parallel statements. They're saying more or less the same thing in slightly different ways, using different words. The first line, he calls them angels. The second line, what does he call them? Ministers. He calls them ministers. Ministers means servants. That's striking, isn't it? He is putting the angels in their proper place in relation to the enthroned Son. He's saying that that if you're really keen to serve and worship angels or the Old Testament message that they brought to take those things seriously, then the way to do that is by serving and worshipping the enthroned Son, Jesus, just like the angels themselves are doing right now. For they are worshippers and servants of Jesus. Why would you stop at them? So here's the place that uh, the writer is putting the angels in. They have a very important role. It is a role of forwarding or redirecting. That's what happens sometimes with your phone calls, like when you've got a serious issue, you've hit, uh, you've hit a wall and you need help. You phone the call center, nobody ever publicizes any other numbers that you get through. You can't go and speak to somebody in person. You have to phone the call center you're hoping against hope that you're going to get through to a figurative angel who is going to be able to help you and break through the wall with you and you hit the gives you the menu You hit the option for angel <laughs> I need a saving angel uh, they put you through and they say to you the angel picks up the line and says I'm not going to be assisting you today and they utter those dreaded words please hold whilst I redirect your call to another department and it rings twice you're about to hang up you're just like you've lost all hope it rings twice and somebody answers and they give their name and you realize that the angel has forwarded you to the chief executive of the business right to his office he is the one who picks up the phone and he says hello mentions your name how can I help you and you once you've uh, sunk in what's happened you say "Uh, please I'd rather speak to the angel (laughs) please could you put me back to them put me on hold no, you don't do that. You would never do that. The writer is saying that if you, if you get the angels and you understand them and their message, then you will not get distracted by them. You will not be tempted to go back to them and to put the focus on them and to ask them for help. No, that would take the edge off your faith. You will let them redirect you to Jesus, which is the thing that will sharpen your faith. And then, uh, out of those verses, uh, His rule will outlast all. This is the enthroned son forever king on the forever throne worshiped by angels and his rule will outlast all those are the last two quotes and they place or locate the enthroned son into the sweep of history verse 10 is a quote from psalm 102 where god this is the headline of the psalm the theme of the psalm god is enthroned forever and he rules on high and the quote there you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning taking us back to the scene of creation, isn't it? And the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, he is the creator. He's applying creator language to Jesus. Uh, to the materialist, uh, not the person who chases money, but the person who believes that all there is philosophically in the world is the stuff that we can touch, see, taste. There's no spiritual reality. To the materialist, creation... Well, is all that there is, and therefore creation is ultimate. But the psalmist says uh, it is not so, because God will outlast creation. Creation is not ultimate, God is. And now the writer of the Hebrews is applying that reality to Jesus, and saying Jesus will outlast, and therefore Jesus is ultimate reality. Uh, Take all of creation, all of history, and verse 12, uh, Jesus will roll it up. Like an exercise mat, I know you know the dads in the room. Um, just in terms of working on the dad bod, you get out there and you've got you know you go to the gym. You've got your class. You roll out your mat, class over, roll up the mat, uh, tuck it under your arm. A job done. That is what Jesus will do with all of creation and all of history. He will roll it up and tuck it under his arm. He will outlast all of creation. Uh, Creation will be changed, we're told, but he will remain the same. Chapter 13, verse 8 of Hebrews will tell us, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, The church that Sophie and I went to in London, above the south exit of the building, is very ancient uh, building, but there it is, above the doorway, carved in stone, so that you read it as you leave the building and you go out into the world. There were the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The Son of God and His words will outlast everything. Which is really sobering for us, isn't it? In the the game of uh, survivor, kind of spiritual survivor, if you like, and you read verse 13, if Jesus is the one who will outlast everyone, well then, his enemies will pass away. Psalm 110 is also quoted extensively in the New Testament and in the Book of Hebrews. We're going to come up against it, come across it again and again and again. So, if uh, Psalm 2 is the verses uh, is the is the psalm that must be emblazoned across all of the hoodies, then the writers of the New Testament put Psalm 110 on every billboard. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus' rule will outlast every rule. The the kings who stand in opposition to God that we met in Psalm 2, they take their stand against God and His Anointed One. What will become of them and of every human being who lines up with them, which is to say every human being who does not line up with Jesus, who does not submit to the enthroned Son? Well, Psalm 2 says they will be dashed to pieces like pottery. And Psalm 110 says they will become a footstool for Jesus as he is on his throne. It is a place of nothingness. Why listen to Jesus? I guess because it is the only sensible move if you have any concept whatsoever of risk. I met somebody for a coffee at the start of this week and um, it just really struck me in the way that he went about making decisions that he was all about analyzing and mitigating risk. Uh, What is risk? Risk is is the magnitude of the seriousness, the downside of a negative event, multiplied by the likelihood of that event taking place. And so to drift away, let's do the risk analysis with Jesus. To drift away from Jesus means that you will be numbered amongst His enemies, the enemies of the enthroned Son. What is the risk for Jesus' enemies? It is total. You will become his footstool. What is the likelihood of that happening? 100%. Because his rule will outlast every rule. And therefore, the message is, the take-home for us is, don't neglect the king's salvation. Interesting word that he puts in there. The king, with all of his glory, or his rule, his might, his dominion, his sovereignty, is spoken of in terms of the salvation that he brings. Uh, The ringing appeal of the section, given the watertight case of the angels and the Old Testament, is the one in 2 verse 1. We must positively pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest negatively we drift away from it. The image is, is one of navigating, of kind of finding your way. My experience of trying to keep on the right heading using the tools of direction and orienteering are pretty abysmal. Uh, We were given a compass, we were given a bearing. It was late at night, it was pitch black darkness and the destination, the challenge was to find my son in the middle of the felt. He was a a few hundred meters away. I was given the bearing, the direction in which he was and I was given a compass to be able to locate that. Uh, The interesting thing that I learned about following uh, with a compass and navigating with a compass is that it does you no good whilst you're there holding a compass? It does you no good to focus on your feet you know watch your feet have, you know you because any any slight deviation you end up like 50 meters away you'll never find where you're going it does you no good either to focus on the compass to say okay because the thing keeps on moving doesn't it like any time you have to w- walk around an obstacle when it throws you off course what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to is to take your bearing take your heading use the use the compass to locate which direction is it pointing you in and to fix your eyes on a point on the horizon on a landmark something that doesn't move don't pick a cow right um cows don't move very much though huh? um and something unusual like don't pick a a normal tree pick something that's distinctive that's maybe unique even and you fix your eyes on that and then when you you know, your feet take you this way, and the compass wheel is spinning because you're having to work your way around obstacles. It's okay because you've picked your landmark and you will head for that come hell or high water. The landmark won't move. And that is what the writer is saying. There is a great salvation that the enthroned son has on offer. He's given us the landmark, the landmark is the enthroned son. And his salvation, his final word, his finished work. That salvation is great, and it is attested. Uh, It's great, he says, don't neglect the king's salvation because it is great. It's great, uh, he will outlast his enemies in judgment for sure, but by the same token, his salvation is greater than any other that may be on offer. And he makes that point again by contrasting with the angels. We're not going to go into huge detail on this. Uh, but chapter 2, verse 2, the, the angels brought the message, they brought the law at Sinai. And the language that's there in chapter 2, verse 2, it, it has to do with things that are legally binding, where every transgression and disobedience received, it's just punishment. Because that's what the law did. The law portrayed the awesome holiness of God. And so it exposes those who are guilty of violating the holy law of God. It, it indicates that they must not go unpunished. So when Moses meets God, introduced to God during the book, in the book of Exodus, he's up on the mountain. He, he comes down the mountain the second time that he's receiving the tablets after the first set get broken. Yahweh meets him and declares his name to him. He exposes his character, inner workings to Moses. And he says, he describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity on generation after generation. Because God in His holiness demands justice. And that was the message declared by the angels at Sinai. And therefore what that message leaves us longing for is a rescuer. Because if He is holy... And he must punish. He must not leave guilt unpunished. Well, then what about every one of us? None of us would go free. But the message that has now been declared by the Lord, verse 3, well, that has to do with a great salvation. It has to do with a rescuing king. All the greater because of the judgment that we all naturally deserve. And the point being that if you stray or veer from the message with Jesus, then you are left without a rescuer. It would be like going back to the message of the angels, which would leave you guilty and condemned. And so you see the point. That you cannot drift or compromise or live with a blunt-edged religion rather than committed faith in Jesus. Because Jesus and only Jesus is God's finished work. Chapter 1 and verse 3 paraphrases that verse, uh, verse 13's quote of Psalm 110 paraphrases it he has made purification for sins and he has sat down in the positive sense he has sat down the job has been done he has made purification for sins that is his great salvation for the Christian that is good news that Jesus has sat down for the enemy of Jesus it is horrendous news because he has sat down and he is waiting for that moment when his enemies will become his footstool He is God's final word. There is nothing to add. There is nothing that can be taken away. His message cries out for salvation. Anything else labels you as guilty and cries out for punishment. Do not try to get right with God in any other way. We must pay more careful attention. How do we know that that salvation is great? How do we know for sure? How can we? How can we do due diligence on this to check it out? Well, it, we can because it's been attested. Attested is the word that's used there in verse 3. The message of salvation has been attested, which just means, to attest something means that you've provided clear evidence uh, that the truth of something is true, that something is true. And that Jesus is the enthroned Son with a great salvation has been attested. Verse 9, we were told, God has anointed him, he spoke from heaven, this is my Son. That's an attestation, isn't it? Uh, And then, before that, before Jesus even arrived, this is the whole point about the angels, God had sent angels, messengers, and He sent them for us as attestation as to Jesus being the enthroned Son. That's what verse 14 is all about. We read there about uh, ministering spirits who were sent for those who were to inherit salvation. Who are those who are to inherit salvation? It's the church. It's Christians. And the angels were sent for us. And some people get caught up and think, oh, the angels are sent for us, so there's angels around. What, What do I do? How do I, you know, plug into angels, right? I think that's a distraction. The question is not so much, how are the angels serving us, but how have they served us? Well, they've served us by providing the redirect to Jesus. By bringing us the message in the Old Testament that prepared the way for him so that we would not fail to recognize the eternal son when he stepped into history the one who's in eternal relationship with his heavenly father who became the enthroned son in history through his coronation and so there's anointing there's angels there's an announcement and then there's more attestation in verse 3 and 4 and this is just the way that the gospel gets to us but it's striking how it's put in verse 3 and 4 the message of Jesus was declared it was announced by God himself then it was confirmed by eyewitnesses, which I take to be the apostles. And then, verse 4, God also authenticated those eyewitnesses through various means, signs and wonders and gifts of the Spirit that we read about in the book of Acts. You see, there, there is no part of the chain of evidence that has not been attested and guaranteed and demonstrated to be true. And therefore, don't drift. It will be the height of folly God himself has served us with clear and concrete evidence of his eternal and enthroned Son. Let me bring this to a close. What might stop you paying more attention? What might uh, cause you to lose your edge? Well, you might have stalled. You might have come off your spiritual growth curve. Jesus has become ordinary and predictable. Can you see from this morning that that cannot be further from the truth? He is the eternal Son, who journeyed into world history in the way that He did in order to become the enthroned Son. That is not orderly or predictable. Maybe you've compromised habits or decisions that you know, you've stepped into sin, you know are at odds with a sound and sharp belief in Jesus. Well, Jesus is the One. Here's the warning. Jesus is the One who will outlast all of His enemies. You don't want to be numbered amongst them. You don't want to drift to that point. He is the one who will wrap up history and he will evaluate history and he will evaluate all of us but he is also the one at the same time who brings a great salvation and purification for sins and is there on offer as soon as you come to him. But maybe for you it's been hardships and none of those who stand against him, here's the reassurance, none of those who stand against him or his people Will have the final word. Jesus gets the final word. Those enemies will become his footstool, those who stand against you, who cause you that hardship. And now, what does that mean? You know, that may be off in the future, but what does that mean for us, reality, and our experience now, as we feel like that edge is being worn away? It means the experience of Psalm 102. And I would commend to you just as as edifying, encouraging homework, to go and read Psalm 102 and know that this is speaking about Jesus. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Coming to Jesus with how hard it is. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Here's one. I lie awake and I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered through all generations. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards, he has regard to the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. He looks and he hears the groans of his people. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. The enthroned son will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And therefore the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the journey of our Lord Jesus, who journeyed through the heavens, the eternal Son, to take on human flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, that he might become the enthroned Son, whose kingdom will have no end, who will be unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who meets us with purification for sins, the offer of purification. Thank you for your ministering spirits. Thank you for the angels who paved the way, who pointed to him that we might not confuse him. We might not be distracted from him. And so for whatever area it is, Lord, where we have stalled or compromised or suffered hardship, where the edge has become blunted, we thank you that you have given us the means by which that might be reinstated and restored. And would you do that amongst us today? In Jesus' name, amen.